such an important part of our church, and especially the youth group back in the 80s when I was here, and it's uh, great to see him again. <clears throat> when I uh, looked over what was happening this past year in our country and how the darkness seemed to be deepening, I became very disturbed. And I was wondering if there was a way that uh, I could deal with this to develop the kind of mentality that would not let this uh, defeat me. And uh, God showed me some scriptures that uh, gave me a way of looking at this time in history for God's people in a way that not only enables us to cope, but to overcome. And so this series is called The Pilgrimage. And it's a concept that we don't really understand that well because we're kind of settled. We're very comfortable with our lifestyles. And yet the Bible encourages us to think differently. And I'd like to do that for the next three weeks. And so we're going to start by looking at uh, Psalm 123. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you always call us to keep moving because there's a destination that you've... Uh, invited us to go towards and uh, we press on fixing our eyes on Jesus and uh, it's especially relevant now that we do this so that we truly can uh, be the people that you want us to be at this time in history at this time in our country we thank you Lord for your word today pray in Jesus name amen When you look at the history of civilization, you notice certain patterns. And one that is especially evident is how every great culture, weakened by its own decadence, was overwhelmed by the consequences of that and collapsed and disappeared. Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Babylon, the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome. These empires were not sustainable. Now those countries still exist, some with different names, but the only evidence of their former greatness lies in rubble and ruins. For example, the dynasty of the pharaohs has vanished, but you can still take a selfie in front of the pyramids. And a camel ride around the Sphinx is about $100 US. But for you, my friend, a special price, $10 only. The British writer Shelley captures this motif in his poem Ozymandias about a traveler who brings a report of his journey in the desert where he, sees, where he saw the remains of a huge monument and he especially noticed the shattered visage with a frown and a sneer of cold command. But it wasn't Trump. Because on that pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of kings, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. He must have really been something. Well, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. That's it. That's all that's left of the most powerful man on earth. And so all the great cultures and empires have disappeared with one exception, 
although it was never really a world power, the culture of Israel has remained essentially intact for thousands of years. We don't have any annual festivals commemorating the fall of Babylon or the Battle of Waterloo. But the Jews still celebrate the Passover. In fact, their annual feasts were the center of gravity for their culture. So every year pilgrims would come to Jerusalem to reaffirm their identity as the chosen people and to recommit themselves to loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And on their journey up to Mount Zion, they would recite the Psalms of Ascent, specifically Psalm 120 to 134, because these helped them prepare for the great feast when all the tributaries of the pilgrims poured into the city with unbounded joy. Now, we are also pilgrims because this world is not our home. Canada is not our final destination. It's too cold. And I'm not talking about the weather. We are aliens and strangers on earth looking for a better country that God has prepared for us, according to Hebrews 11. So we're on a journey, and as we get closer to our destination, we also need to prepare ourselves. And these psalms are still one of the best ways to do that. It says here that, Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. The pilgrims who came to Jerusalem from all over the world often came from countries where they were ridiculed and endured contempt. Because throughout their history, the Jewish people have faced and embraced much sorrow. We don't really understand that because in our culture, suffering is considered an inconvenience and even an embarrassment. So the spotlight is on the ones who have succeeded. The MVP, the Fortune 500, the Academy Award winners, American Idol, the Olympic gold medalist, best-selling authors, etc., etc., In our culture, the spotlight is on those who have succeeded. But if you go to Israel, you'll notice that the greatest honors they have are for those who have suffered. Their statues and monuments depict martyrs and victims of terrorism. It's a very different worldview, a different value system. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We don't understand that because here in Canada, the Christian church has enjoyed enjoyed decades of favor and even preferential treatment by that notorious Grinch, Revenue Canada. We've had it pretty good. Although I must say, I did get upset when uh, Costco stopped giving me my Christian discount. Do you get that? The Christian discount, 15 to 20% off every Sunday before noon? you got 30 minutes, folks. Well, obviously the preceding statement was not intended to be factually accurate. Just imagine what that would do to church attendance. So let's not give the enemy any ideas. But we've had it pretty good. You know, while believers in other nations face trouble and hardship and danger and violence, we get income tax deductions and housing allowance and our own radio station, as well as a shout-out in our national anthem. But we've noticed it's beginning to change. We're beginning to experience more and more of that ridicule and contempt. 
And that's not surprising because we are pilgrims. And pilgrims are different. They don't really belong. They're looking for something else. They're looking for something better. In fact, some of our beliefs are being called un-Canadian. Pilgrims can make the locals very uneasy. Why are you looking for something better? We're not good enough for you? Ron Hutchcraft says, all sinners really want is for someone to sin with. And the easiest crowd to be accepted by is a crowd that's doing wrong together. Well, that's not good enough for us. We don't cultivate relationships where sin is the glue that holds us together. We're different. And when you're different, you face ridicule. Things are beginning to change around us, and we're beginning to feel the wind chill of contempt. And that's why the first verses of this psalm are so important. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. When we pray, we need to make sure that we have the right address. Our prayers are not addressed to the member of parliament or the MLA, but to the throne in heaven. And this is not the game of thrones. It's not musical chairs where different people take turns on the throne. Napoleon once said that whenever he saw a throne, he felt compelled to sit on it. And of course, that compulsion left a trail of death and destruction across an entire continent. But on a smaller scale, our self-centered ambitions can also leave a certain amount of wreckage in their wake. I don't know about you, but one of my biggest shocks of my entire life was when I discovered that it wasn't me sitting on that throne. Because I naturally assumed I was the center of the universe. And unfortunately, sometimes I still do. There are times when I actually think I could do a fairly good job of running the show. If only I had the chance. Just give me North America. I can handle it. Well, not. Not at all. I lift my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. It's not us. It's God who occupies the throne. And that should be obvious, but we don't necessarily always act like it. Because we sometimes treat God as if he's our personal bodyguard. Or maybe a bounty hunter. These are the people that we need to get rid of. Or we see God as a consultant. It's always nice to get his advice before we make a big decision. Or perhaps we treat him like a janitor. Oh God, I made a mess. Clean up in aisle seven. Would you look after that? That's what our prayers sound like sometimes. I lift my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. You know, in the kingdoms of the world, throne rooms were not friendly places. If you wanted to present a request before the king, you would approach him with fear and trembling. You had to be so careful of your language and even your posture. You had to be lavish with praise. And if you showed any disrespect, 
It wouldn't be a 15-yard penalty, more like off with his head. No one would even risk entering a throne room unless they had no other option. Now we know that God is not like that. That's because we're not just his subjects, we are his children, so we have an all-access pass. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As believers, we have a welcome in the throne room. So we lift up our eyes to you whose throne is in heaven. And as we consider that, as we realize that, it puts us in our place and puts everything else into proper perspective. Because if God is on the throne, then what do we have to be afraid of? Do we need to panic? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on the throne, we're safe. We can get hurt, but we can't be harmed. As long as God is on the throne. Incidentally, have you ever had an anxiety attack or despaired because of Ozymandias, king of kings? No, because he's not on the throne. There's no need to despair. The only thing that matters is who's on first. Who's on the throne? I lift my eyes to you whose throne is in heaven. So if God is on the throne, what does that make us? How should we then live? Verse 2 says, As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master. See, in the throne room, we are not God's right-hand advisors. We're not part of his cabinet. I'm not the minister of external affairs. We are slaves and servants. That's our role. Our relationship is sons, but our role is servants. And the problem is that I usually aspire to a larger portfolio and greater influence. I would rather be a lobbyist. I think a lot of us have a talent for that, especially when it comes to our prayers. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. Paul Shear writes about people who lobby around the courts of the Almighty for special favors, plucking at his sleeve, pestering him. I wonder how often I'm pestering God with my prayers. Now, I know the Bible says we are to pray continually. And I know the parable of the persistent widow, which was spoken to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And we should definitely pray without ceasing because prayer strengthens our connection with God. And the big part about prayer is not just when we do the talking, it's when we're listening because God is speaking. So that's why we should pray continually. And prayer gives us the opportunity to declare His glory. But we have to be careful that when we pray, we don't think that we're reminding God of something that he's forgotten or trying to convince him to do something that he wasn't going to do. Come on, please. If you do this, I'll never ask for anything ever again unless I really need to. 
Sometimes the underlying assumption in our prayers is that we know what's best. So all we have to do is to convince God that our ways are better than His ways, and God, let's do this sooner rather than later. That is so disrespectful. That's not our place. Not our place at all. It says, as the eyes of the slave look to the hand of their master. A servant is not a lobbyist or a union negotiator. In fact, servants don't have much of an agenda. Their main responsibility is to be available to their master. As pilgrims, we are on a journey to a better country. Better because that's where there's a throne. Because that's where God's kingdom has come and His will is being done. But even before we get there, we are rehearsing for our roles as slaves and servants. And we are aligning our ambitions with His will. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6.33 when He said, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. I wonder what 2019 would look like if we did that for a whole year. I keep forgetting to do that. I keep forgetting that who's on the throne because so much of it is about me. I keep forgetting. Do I seek first his kingdom? I wish you wouldn't ask that because... I sometimes have trouble fitting his kingdom into my top ten. We get so distracted by our careers and our families and our iPhones and all the concerns and complications of life. We're just not that available to the king. Eugene Peterson writes, A servant assumes a certain stance. If they fail to take that posture, attentive responsiveness to the master's command will be hard. If we're too busy, we don't even realize what our master wants because we're distracted by everything that's happening around us. The eyes of the servant look to the hand. It's all about eye-hand coordination. A servant is not looking around worried and upset about many things. Hebrews 12 says we fix our eyes on Jesus. A servant watches the hand because it all begins there. See, a well-trained servant does not necessarily need verbal directions. The master will motion, or he will point, and the servant knows exactly what to do. It's all about the hand. The Bible says God delivers us by His right hand. Psalm 17.70 saves us by His hand. He sustains us, upholds us, helps us, guides us, all through the Psalms. His hand, that's where the action is. And with God, timing is everything. So we wait, keeping our eye on his hands. I wish that God would have done something else by now, would have done more. But I'm watching his hand because maybe it hasn't moved yet. You know, we look at our culture, we see decadence increasing, rotting the foundations of our society. We worry about our children and grandchildren being exposed to this stuff in our schools. And we don't see God's hand moving against the enemy in any significant way yet. 
There's no sign of improvement while things are getting worse. Jesus said in John 16, verse 8, about the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. We don't see a lot of that right now. God's hand has not yet moved. So what do we do? Well, of course, uh, one thing we can do is decide to take matters into our own hands. You may get impatient and try to solve your own problems on your own terms. An eye for an eye. Optometrists are standing by. A tooth for a tooth. Hope you have a good dental plan. But the servant stays at his post and waits. And while he waits, he watches the hand. And as he does, he realizes something. The master is not in a hurry. He's not nervous or agitated. The master is not perplexed or panicking. So if God is not in a hurry, why should I be? As the servant waits, he doesn't get impatient. Instead, he begins to calm down. He turns down the volume and all that emotional noise. And he starts to experience a peace that passes all understanding. It's what Psalm 46 talks about. Be still and know that I am God. There's not a lot of uh, drama or noise in this psalm. It's very calm, very peaceful. We're waiting. So he starts to experience this peace. Lobbyists do not know how to be still. But pilgrims have to be patient because it's a long journey. So pilgrims can't afford to panic. We have to walk by faith. It's like David in Psalm 23. You know, David is in enemy territory. It's dangerous. So what's he doing? Well, the most amazing thing, he puts down his sword and picks up a fork and says, pass the Brussels sprouts. David, what are you doing? You're in danger. I know, but can't you see he's prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies? But isn't God going to do something about those enemies? The arrogant, the contemptuous? Of course. But when? I'm not sure. We're going to have to keep our eyes on his hand. And besides, even if you can't see God's hand, you can still trust his heart. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. Do we have any other option? No. If we took things into our own hands, what a mess. What an absolute mess we would make. We have to depend on God's hand. And so pilgrims have to learn how to be patient. Pilgrims cannot afford to panic because it's a long journey. It's a long obedience in the same direction. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. This year, I need to calm down. 
I need to turn down the emotional noise in my life. I need to make sure that fear does not intimidate me. And instead, that I can feel the peace that comes from watching the one who's on the throne, the one who's not worried, the one who's not panicking. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. And Lord, we know that you will, you will act. We know that. So we wait. And as we wait, we want to be attentive and responsive. And if your hand moves to motion us to go this way or go that way, we want to respond. We want to be the people you want us to be and seek first your kingdom. Too much is at stake here. We can't solve these problems ourselves. We look to the one who already has a solution and wait until he moves. We trust in you. We are pilgrims moving to a better country where your kingdom has come and your will is done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.